The die has been cast. For demonstrating an overwhelming lack of self-belief, Israel has committed itself to a lifetime of incarceration in the wilderness. Returning to Egypt is no longer an option for them, nor, it seems, is moving on into Canaan. God appears to be utterly exasperated and asks Moses and Aaron how long he will have to put up with the people's grumbling. He reiterates his decision to punish them as Moses suggested he should, confirming that no one counted in the census over the age of 20 will enter the promised land. No one, that is, except Joshua and Caleb, the only two spies in the cohort of 12 who returned to the camp believing that they could take on the Canaanite locals and win. As for the children who the Israelites feared would be stolen from them, these will be the men and women who enter the land rejected by their parents. But the older generation will all die. Your bodies will fall in the wilderness, God tells them. And there's more. Rather than grow up in the bucolic paradise promised to their ancestors' generations earlier, their children will be reduced to the role of wilderness shepherds, shuffling their flocks aimlessly around the Sinai Desert for the next 38 years. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible, Episode 37, Swallowed Alive. It may not have the most imaginative name, but the Book of Numbers is packed with adventure. On the back of the announcement that the relatively straightforward journey from Egypt to Canaan is now going to take 40 years, more drama ensues. But before we jump into it, a brief introduction. I'm an advertising creative director whose job is often to take complex information about a brand and represent it to the public in a way that makes sense. So in a way, I'm simply doing the day job. And for those of you who don't know, Holy Bible is the Bible minus any pious finger-wagging, which means that people who aren't religious should feel more welcome. Okay, we're midway through the Bible's fourth book, and things are most definitely not going to plan. God allocates one year of desert travel for every day that Israel's spies were on their reconnaissance mission. He rages at the whole wicked community and accuses them of having banded together against him. The sense is that Israel has picked the wrong enemy and that they will now experience what it feels like to have God against them rather than on their side. As punishment and a deterrent to others thinking of going their own way, the ten spies who spooked the camp with stories of giants are all struck down and killed by a plague. Naturally, the people are utterly deflated at the news. The Bible describes how they moaned bitterly. Incredibly, they decide to push on into Canaan anyway, claiming that they are ready to take on the dangers while acknowledging that they have behaved badly. Despite Moses' warnings that God will not be marching with them and that the Canaanites and Amalekites will absolutely murder them without his protection, they persevere anyway. With no pillar of smoke or fire and no Ark of the Covenant marching before them, they press on into the hill country where they are quickly beaten back by fierce Amalekites and Canaanites. The 300-mile journey across the Red Sea, through the Sinai Desert and into what is now Israel shouldn't really have taken much more than a couple of months, 
even with everyone on foot, carrying babies and herding sheep, goats and cattle. Thanks to the Israelites' woeful lack of trust in the God who has brought them this far, though, the trip takes a little longer than planned, and the wandering in the wilderness, as it is referred to poetically, has begun. It is a weary, dusty, monotonous trek that is no doubt made worse by the Israelites' constant muttering that this was all a very bad idea, and if they'd known before what they know now, etc, etc, and so on. As quickly as it restarts, the action grinds to a halt. God has some more rules to share with Moses. It's not certain why the narrative is suddenly interrupted, but the continuance of lawgiving suggests that God is reassured that he can still work with the people he's brought out of Egypt, and that the relationship has not been permanently damaged. And so, in preparation for entry into the Promised Land, God hands Moses some more regulations, mainly around the sacrifices which the people are to offer on their arrival. These rites are told that when they sacrifice bulls or sheep, they must also throw in some fine flour mixed with olive oil. Three and a half pounds of flour and just over two pints of oil should do the trick. Each lamb that is sacrificed as a burnt offering should also be accompanied by just over two pints of wine. Just in case your brains don't work in imperial measurements, don't worry, I've put the metric amounts in the show notes. If a ram is being offered, a slightly larger amount of grain, oil and wine is expected. Seven pounds of flour and two and three quarter pints of oil. Two and three quarter pints of wine should be poured against the altar as a drink offering, just under two bottles in today's measures. The entire offering is intended to make a pleasing aroma for God to enjoy. Not necessarily because he loves the smell of a barbecue, but because he appreciates it when his people show gratitude and loyalty to him. Predictably, the amount of flour, oil and wine that accompanies a sacrificial bull is higher still. This time, 11 pounds of flour and four pints each of oil and wine are needed. Every native-born Israelite is to make these offerings forever, and converts from other countries must join in too. The Israelite and the foreigner who believes in God are to be considered the same before the Lord, Moses is told, and they are both subject to the same rules, an early exercise in tolerance and inclusion. Incidentally, the official term for a foreigner who has become a follower of God is proselyte. The people are reminded that they are to present God with a loaf of bread made from the first grain from the first harvest in their new land the offering known as the first fruits, and they are to continue presenting him with a loaf made with the first of the grain at every subsequent harvest. God appears to appreciate that some breaches of his many laws are likely to happen without people realising that they have done anything wrong. The protocol for what to do in this scenario has already been spelled out in the book of Leviticus. The people must offer a bull and a goat as well as some grain and wine. The priest will then use these offerings to intervene with God on behalf of the community, and God will forgive both them and the foreign converts living among them. Again, the rules laid down in Leviticus for when an individual breaks a law unintentionally are repeated. Offering God a female goat gets them back in credit. Anyone who willfully and defiantly opposes God is on dangerous ground, however, and faces being ejected from Israel. The same goes for those who deny God's existence or authority. These people are referred to as blasphemers, and God tells them that they must be excluded permanently from his community. 
Unlike those whose sacrifices have led to their forgiveness, these people's guilt will remain with them, he says. It's clear that some of God's people accidentally break a law because they don't know it's a law. However, the book now throws a spotlight on someone who has knowingly broken one of the Ten Commandments. Whether it's stupidity, absent-mindedness or just willful disobedience, for some reason an Israelite man decides to go and collect wood on the Sabbath. It must occur to him that everyone else is having a lie-in, or eating manna, or lazing about under shady trees should any exist in this bit of desert wilderness. But for some unknown reason, the man decides to exit the camp to go and look for firewood. Collecting wood not only breaks the law about working, carrying items from the public domain to the private is also forbidden. Over the centuries, Jews have devised a workaround for this mobility-limiting law. They have erected eruvs, a system of poles connected by wires that enclose a whole area of a city and create one communal private domain within which people can carry things around as much as they like without fear of God's wrath. The world's largest eruv, spelt E-R-U-V, is believed to be the one enclosing 100 square miles of West Los Angeles, which was completed in 2003. Sadly for the Sabbath breaker in this story, none of this sophisticated system of wire enclosures existed in the Book of Numbers. Similar to the man who's caught blaspheming during a fight, the offender is taken into custody by Moses and Aaron until God decides what to do with him. God is adamant about the punishment for deliberately breaking one of his ten primary rules. The man must be taken outside of the camp and stoned to death. The Sabbath breaker is duly escorted into the desert and killed, an example to the rest of the Israelites of how the laws which he inscribed on stone are seen by God as commandments, not suggestions. Sandwiched between two accounts of major disobedience in the Israelite camp is an unexpected word of sartorial instruction. Anyone who has ever wondered why Orthodox Jewish men are so fond of wearing braided cords under their suits needs to look no further than the Book of Numbers. The information given here is quite specific and requires the Israelites to wear tassels on the corners of their garments. These tassels are to have blue cords woven into them and their purpose is to focus the mind of the person who is wearing them. Looking at the tassels will fix their thoughts on God rather than allow them to follow Quote, the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Tassels are designed to help the Israelites remember to obey all God's commands, ensuring that his people are kept separate and holy for him. Again, God reminds them that he brought them out of Egypt expressly to be their God. They are his prototype and their behaviour reflects on him. For the programme to work, God needs the Israelites to be visibly separate from all other people, which clearly involves not just a change in behaviour, but also a change of clothing. The blue is symbolic of the garments worn by the priests who serve God in the tabernacle, and by having blue in their tassels, the Israelites are reminded that they are expected to be priests to the whole world. Jewish tassels are called tzizit, spelt T-Z-I-Z-I-T, and are made from wool and contain eight strings and five knots. The number is symbolic. Hebrew letters also correspond to numbers, and the word tzizit equals 600. As there are 613 Jewish laws given by God to Moses, the eight strings and five knots make up the remaining digits. Today, most Jews only have tassels on their prayer shawls, and although the command given to Moses is for all the Israelites, 
Today, this dress code remains an almost exclusively male one. Now that the reality of a life sentence in the desert has begun to sink in, some of the Israelites forget how awful things were in Egypt and blame Moses for taking them from paradise into a land where they are all going to die. Memory clearly plays tricks on one Levite priest and his cohorts when they attack Moses and Aaron for lording it over the Israelites. The Levite's name is Korah and his wingmen are Dathan, Abiram and On, who all belong to the tribe of Reuben. With them are another 250 men who are all respected elders in the community and who between them form a somewhat formidable opposition. The rebels confront Moses and Aaron, telling them that they see themselves as equally holy as their leaders. So why should the two brothers continue to set themselves above everyone else? Rather than argue with the men on a human level, Moses opts to let God decide who should and should not lead his people. Falling face down, he tells Korah and his men to return the next day with burning incense in their censers and that God will then choose his holy leader. He lets Korah know that he and his co-conspirators have gone too far, asking him why it isn't enough that God has separated off the Levites to be his special workers in the tabernacle. Why do Reubenites now want to be priests? This feels to Moses like something more than human ambition. It is an attack on God and he asks what Aaron can possibly have done for them to challenge his role as high priest. Moses summons Korah, who refuses to come. He and his men are resentful that the two brothers chose to lead them away from the land of milk and honey that was Egypt, and have failed spectacularly on their promise to bring them into a new paradise in Canaan. To Korah, the brothers are just hot air and spin, and he sees the Israelites yet again reduced to the role of slaves. It is an outrageous claim. Moses begged God not to pick him as the Israelites' leader, while the exodus from Egypt and the journey into the Sinai wilderness appears to have been entirely stage-managed by God. Moses is furious and tells God not to accept any of these men's sacrificial offerings. The sense is that anything they offer in order to be blessed or forgiven will not be followed through with actual blessings or forgiveness. I have not taken so much as a donkey from them, says Moses, keen to vindicate himself and clearly fuming. To resolve the matter, Moses tells the men to arrive back at the tabernacle in the morning with their senses alight and filled with incense ready to present to God. Aaron must bring his censer too, and the next day, the 250 rebels arrive at the tabernacle with their fire sticks. The book of Numbers describes how God appears in a glory cloud and advises Moses and Aaron to step out of harm's way so that he can squash the entire population of Israel. Alarmed that this is an overreaction, Moses and Aaron fall face down again and beg God not to destroy everyone just because of a few bad apples. Yet again, God relents and advises Moses to move everyone away from the three ringleaders who are standing in front of their tents with their families. On appears to have made himself scarce by this point. Whether he has given up on the rebellion or is simply blended into the background is uncertain. To make it crystal clear to the rest of the Israelites that God is in charge, Moses announces that if these men die a natural death, then they know that he is a chancer who is unqualified to lead them. But 
If something unexpected wipes the men out, such as the ground opening up and swallowing them, then he should be acknowledged as God's chosen leader. At this point, the ground beneath the three men rips open, consuming them, their tents and their families. Their cries of pain and terror send everyone else fleeing, convinced that they too will be swallowed by the earth. As an emphatic full stop, fire from heaven, possibly a lightning strike, makes short work of the rebels' 250 followers. The ground that opens up dramatically to swallow the men who have opposed Moses and Aaron might simply have been an earthquake, but it gives rise to a belief in an underworld from which there is no return, a kind of Old Testament proto-hell. Often translated as the grave or the pit, Sheol is seen in the Bible as a trap that waits opportunistically to snare the unwary and cut them off from God forever. Later in the Old Testament, Job refers to Sheol as a place of the dead where a man's life vanishes like a cloud, never to return home again. He describes it as a land of gloom, darkness and disorder, a place of utter despair where even the light is dark. The writers of the Psalms live in fear of Sheol. One describes being placed in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths, confined and unable to escape. The Old Testament underworld is a dim, joyless domain, often seen as a place of punishment. The prophet Isaiah sees it as a netherworld, inhabited by the spirits of the dead, who were once godless leaders living it up in the world, and who now spend eternity in a place that is crawling with maggots and worms. The New Testament makes no reference to the pit or Sheol, preferring to reference hell, an eternal resting place for the dead who refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is God's son. The New Testament's writers also mention Hades, which seems to fulfil the same role as Sheol. Jesus tells Peter that he is the rock on which the church will be built, and the gates of Hades won't be able to overpower it. A suggestion that Hades is a bad place where evil forces lurk, rather than simply a grave. In the Bible's final book, Revelation, Hades and death give up their dead, and, after each person is judged, death and Hades are thrown into a lake of fire, a suggestion that Sheol is a holding zone where souls await the final judgement at the end of time. Back in the desert, the ringleaders may be dead, but the rebellion is far from over. There is no trace of Korah, Dathan, Abiram or On, and all that is left of the 250 rebels who opposed Moses and Aaron are their charred remains and their bronze censers. According to the book of Numbers, God tells Moses that these incense burners are holy. How is uncertain. They are the private property of the rebel leaders, but because they have borne witness to God's judgement, the sense is that this has somehow made them sacred. Eleazar is to gather them up, empty them of their coals and hammer the metal into sheets that can be overlaid on the bronze altar as a sign to Israel of what happens to those who rebel against God. The job is given to him because Aaron, as high priest, is forbidden to have any contact with dead bodies and removing the censers without touching any corpses is possibly quite a big ask. It is also a reminder that only Aaron and his descendants are allowed to burn incense before God so anyone who thinks they might have a go now knows that they will end up like Korah's rebels. The executions fail to unite Israel and bring everybody back in line. 
The people are angry and disappointed in their leadership and complain to Moses and Aaron that they have killed God's people. This seems unfair as the account makes it clear that it is God who did the slaughtering, not the two brothers. As the assembled Israelites gather at the tabernacle to oppose their leaders, the book describes how God appears in a cloud above the tent. When the brothers approach it, God tells them to get away from the others so that he can destroy the opposition. Instead of running for their lives, the brothers fall face down and try to derail the inevitable slaughter. Moses urges Aaron to take his censer, fill it with burning coals and incense from the special altar inside the holy place, and then hurry to the mob in an attempt to win them forgiveness. He can see that a plague has already begun to affect the rebels, and the writer paints a vivid picture of Aaron running among the stricken men, smoking censer in hand, offering atonement, a kind of spiritual vaccination to those who have seen the bodies piling up and must now be having second thoughts. The book describes how Aaron stands between the living and the dead, and it appears that the brothers' hasty and brave intervention prevents a whole-scale genocide. By the time the plague stops, 14,700 people have been killed. It is a huge number of casualties, but given that the entire Israelite community complained about the rebels' deaths, it only amounts to around 0.007% of the population. His work done, Aaron returns to his brother at the entrance to the tabernacle. However bad Moses and his brother think things might have gone, however much they may see themselves on a higher moral plane than the rabble, things are about to come crashing down for both of them. God's standards are high and he needs to send a message even if his treatment of the two brothers is that message. The fall of Moses is next. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. If you like what you hear, give us a review on your podcast channel of choice and feel free to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Any comments and feedback are more than welcome. Send them to contact at holybible.com.